The Roman Catholic Church and the papacy have made extremely bold and audacious claims. The papacy has claimed authority to appoint kings or depose them and to grant salvation or to deny it. Pope Innocent III, who was Pope from 8, uh, 1198 to 1216, claimed that as Pope, he was the vicar of Christ and of God, and that he was supreme sovereign over the church and the world. He claimed that all things on earth and in heaven and in hell are subject to the vicar of Christ. Pope Nicholas the first, 18, or excuse me, 858 to 67, declared we, that is the popes alone, have the power to bind and to loose, claiming that the judgment of a pope is alone is infallible. Pope Gregory the seventh, 1073 to 85, declared that the power to bind and to loose granted by Christ to Peter, gave the popes the right to make and unmake kings, to construct and reconstruct governments, to wrest from those who disobeyed all the territory held by them, and to bestow it upon those who would hold it subject to papal authority. On what foundations, we might ask, do such bold claims rest? They rest fundamentally on the proposition that Jesus Christ gave to Peter the power to bind and loose, and that that power somehow was passed on to a supposed unbroken line of successors. The idea is that Peter was the first bishop of Rome and that he was the first pope, and that his authority has been passed down to his successors as bishops of Rome. Now it would seem that anyone, especially those who are interested in following Jesus Christ, would want to carefully examine such claims to test their legitimacy. In fact, we're told in scripture that we are to test all things, prove all things, as it says in the King James Version, and hold fast that which is good. So before turning over your hope of salvation to such claims, wouldn't you want to know their validity? In today's sermon, I want to examine the question, was Peter the first pope? Now, billions of people believe that Peter, or that the pope rather, is a successor of Peter as Pope. And uh, that would presumably include most Catholics, of which there are somewhere between one and two billion. I don't know the current number exactly, but I think it's approaching about two billion Catholics on the earth. Presumably most of them believe that the Pope is a successor to Peter as the Catholic Church teaches. And uh, there are many Catholics who sincerely believe what they have been taught and as far as 
they understand it are trying to live moral lives live lives as Christians as far as they understand what that means, what that requires. So if, if any Catholics happen to hear this uh, sermon, I would encourage you to seriously consider this question, was Peter the first Pope? Because God loves all people, he loves Catholics and he loves all the rest of the people on the earth and God wants you to know the truth and you ought to want to know the truth. It's an important question. Now, it is claimed as indicated in statements quoted earlier from Catholic sources that the Pope's authority rests on Christ's statement to Peter in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. So we read in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now shortly I want to analyze this scripture in detail, but first let's take a look at the claim that Peter was the Bishop of Rome, because that's where the popes reside and they claim to be successors of Peter because Peter was supposedly the first Bishop of the church in Rome and then they are successors to that office. But there is nothing in scripture that indicates that Peter was the Bishop of Rome or even that he ever was in Rome. It's alleged that the first epistle of Peter was written in Rome. This is alleged by some Catholic uh, historians and scholars. And you'll find this quite often in material from such sources that the epistle of Peter was written in Rome, the first epistle of Peter in the Bible was written in Rome. Although Peter concludes that letter in part as follows in 1 Peter 5 verse 13, 1 Peter 5 verse 13, she who is in Babylon elect together with you greets you. So this tells us that this epistle was written by Peter from Babylon. Now it is claimed in Catholic sources that Babylon here, as we just read, was used as a code word for Rome. Now the city of Babylon, city of Babylon associated with the Babylonian empire was in Asia, in Mesopotamia, in what is now Iraq. And in the book of Revelation, Babylon is indeed used symbolically for Rome, which is another question that might be worth uh, looking into. And this is admitted in Catholic uh, sources. As I said, Catholic sources tell us that when Peter 
mentioned Babylon here that he was really speaking of Rome. And it was generally recognized from early in the Christian era that Babylon, as used in the Bible, is sometimes used symbolically for Rome. But Peter and the others of the 12 original apostles were sent to minister primarily to Israelites, not Gentiles. We read in Matthew 10, beginning with verse 6, Matthew 10 and verse 6, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they were given instructions. This was directed to the 12 apostles that followed Christ during his three and a half year ministry. And they were instructed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was their mission. Now it is true that later Peter and John went to Samaria to lay hands on some converts who had been baptized there. Many of the Christians in Judea had fled to Samaria and elsewhere as a result of persecution. And after the deacon Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria, many in Samaria believed the message. And hence Peter and John were sent to lay hands on those who had been converted. And these apostles also preached it at other times to Gentiles. Peter was sent to Caesarea to introduce the gospel to a group of Gentiles. And other than a few isolated instances, this was the first time that we read in the Bible about the, the, the gospel being proclaimed especially to a group of Gentiles. Now Jesus had told his disciples, his apostles as, as they came to be, before he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, that they were to take the gospel to all nations. We read that in Matthew 28, verse 19. And this was a commission not just for the apostles who were there at that time, it was a commission to the church for the entire age. Jesus said in that same context, I will be with you to the end of the age. So that commission still applies to the church today to go into all the world to preach the gospel to all nations. But the original apostles still were sent primarily to the peoples descended from Israel. If you trace the traditions that indicate where the 12 apostles went, it was mostly to areas where various Israelite peoples had migrated and were living at, at that time in history. Paul, who was converted after Jesus had been crucified, was appointed the leading apostle to the Gentiles. That was his mission, primarily to the Gentiles. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, beginning with verse 7, Galatians 2 and verse 7, where he's speaking about conferring with some of the leaders in Jerusalem. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, Notice he said the gospel 
for the uncircumcised, that would be Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. The gospel for the circumcised, that would be Israelites. Not only Jews, but Israelites. And Peter evidently was the leader in that, that area of the work of the church at that time and how much supervision he exercised over the other apostles is not really indicated. We don't see a lot about that. They actually scattered to the four winds and were, uh, were more or less working independently of each other because of the distance between them, although they were together for quite a while immediately after uh, Christ had died and ascended to heaven. But Paul said that the gospel for the circumcised had been committed to Peter. And he goes on to say, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is another name for Peter, and James here is referring to James, a brother of Jesus who became an apostle after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then John is speaking of the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John and some other books of the New Testament. It says, when James, Cephas, and John, or James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Barnabas was a companion of Paul in the work that he was doing. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That we should go to the Gentiles. So Paul did preach to Israelites as well as uh, Gentiles. He preached to Jews, but his primary mission was to go to Gentile areas and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. On the other hand, although the other apostles did sometimes preach to Gentiles, their primary mission was to go to the circumcised. This is what the Bible plainly teaches. Now, we read where Peter mentioned Babylon, indicating that that is where he was writing that letter from, 1 Peter. Gill's commentary states in commenting on 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, quote, that Peter was at Rome when he wrote this epistle cannot be proved nor any reason be given why the proper name of the place should be concealed and a figurative one expressed. It is best therefore to understand it literally of Babylon in Assyria, the metropolis of the dispersion of the Jews and the center of it. Notice what he says. He says that it is best to understand that it is the Babylon in Assyria or in Mesopotamia which was a metropolis of the dispersion of the Jews 
and the center of it. In fact, the Talmud, there was a Talmud, there's a Talmud called the, the Jerusalem Talmud, but there's also a Talmud called the Babylonian Talmud because it was written sometime in the first few hundred years AD in Babylon. There was a thriving, large Jewish community in Babylon. Babylon was uh, the home of a great number of Jews at the time. The New Testament was written. The majority of Jews carried captive there hundreds of years earlier. The Babylonian captivity did not return to Judea. Many even at the time of the apostles remained in the area of Babylon. And many Israelites from other of the 13 tribes also were in Parthia at that time. Parthia was a huge empire which encompassed much of the Middle East. Areas which had formerly been occupied by the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire uh, that had be, those, that area had been taken over by what was called the Parthian Empire, which occupied much of the Middle East, including Babylon, at the time that Peter lived. Now, Paul, not Peter, wrote the epistle to the Romans that we find in the New Testament. When Paul wrote that epistle, perhaps around 55 AD, the date is not exactly certain, but, and you'll find different ideas about exactly when it was written, but probably sometime around 55 AD, a church had already been established in Rome. And it was a predominantly Gentile church, as Paul mentions in his epistle. And Paul expressed in his epistle to the church in Rome the desire to go to Rome to help establish or strengthen that church. To help establish or strengthen the church. Paul wanted to go there. Now, why, if Peter was the one who established that church as is claimed by the Catholic Church, and he was the bishop there, why would Paul be saying that he wanted to go there to help establish or strengthen the church? Such a thing would have been unnecessary if Peter had been there as the leader or bishop of the church in Rome. Also, it would not have fit in with Peter's commission, which was to be responsible for the apostleship to the, to the circumcised, not Gentiles, but the circumcised. So why would he be bishop of a church in Rome that was composed mainly of Gentiles. Now, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul sends greetings by name to a number of people in the church at Rome, but Peter's name is not mentioned among them. So I think it's fair to conclude that obviously Peter was not in Rome. It would have been an insult if Peter had been there and Paul had not mentioned his name, especially if he was the bishop of Rome. So, the letter itself that Paul wrote militates against the idea that Peter was in Rome at the time that the, the church had been founded there and especially that he was the bishop of it. And 
certainly he was not the one who had founded the church there, as is claimed by the Catholic Church. Halley's Bible Handbook comments, quote, the Roman Catholic tradition that Peter was the first pope is fiction, pure and simple. There is no New Testament hint and no historical evidence whatsoever that Peter was at any time bishop of Rome, end quote. The Encyclopedia Britannica states, quote, there is no historical evidence that St. Peter was Rome's first bishop. And probably there could be many other sources that would say something similar. If you check the uh, records of the papacy, the so-called unbroken line of succession, you will find out that there is no clear line of succession. And at various times, there were several different individuals who claimed to be the Pope at the same time. Many of those who have succeeded to the office of Pope in Rome were scoundrels who bought the office with money or who gained it by intrigue and, and sometimes including murder and many of whom lived scandalous lives completely lacking in any hint of biblical morality. Now, Peter was clearly the leading spokesman among the apostles early in the history of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection. However, by the time of the Jerusalem Conference of Acts 15, which I believe occurred in 49 AD, it was not Peter, but rather James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of his half-brothers who had become an apostle, as I mentioned earlier, who made the final judgment in that conference. And there was dispute over certain matters regarding, especially regarding circumcision of Gentile converts. Peter spoke, Paul spoke, others spoke at that conference, but it was James who made the final judgment. As we read in Acts 15 and verse 19, James said, this is the King James Version, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. The verse in Bible and basic English translation reads as follows, quote, for this reason my decision is that we do not put trouble in the way of those who from among the Gentiles are turned to God. So James evidently was as the presiding apostle in Jerusalem and evidently at that time the, the, the apostle who had chief authority in the church as far as such decisions are concerned. He made the decision after much discussion and the assembly agreed to this decision by James. Paul rebuked Peter on an occasion at Antioch when he had refused to eat with Gentile brethren. In Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11, Galatians 2 and verse 11, Paul wrote, 
Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, in other words, from Jerusalem, where James was, before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So clearly, Peter was not the pope of the early church, issuing decrees claiming the kind of authority that many of the popes of the Roman Catholic Church have claimed. Now let's take a closer look at Matthew 16, beginning of verse 18. Again, it says, and this is from the New King James Version, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now the way this is translated, it appears that Peter is given carte blanche authority, so to speak, to make decisions, and whatever he decides will be ratified automatically by God in heaven. But is that what the scripture really says? Let's take a closer look at the Greek original. The words, the Greek words for bound as bound in heaven and loosed as what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those words are future perfect in the Greek. And the fact that they are future perfect affects the meaning. Now we read in the Young's literal translation of these same verses. Here's how Young's literal translation reads. I also say to you that you are a rock and upon this rock I will build my assembly and gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the reign of the heavens and whatever you may mayest bind on the earth shall be having bound, having shall be having been bound in the heavens and whatever you mayest loose on the earth shall be having been loosed in the heavens. Now notice the difference in the wording here. Whatever is to be bound on the earth is something that shall have been bound in the heavens. Whatever is loosed is something that shall have been loosed in, in the heavens. And several other translations have similar wording. This is how the concordant literal translation translates these verses, Matthew 16, 18, and 19. The concordant literal translation, Now I also am saying to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will be building my ecclesia, and the gates of the unseen shall not be prevailing against it. I will be giving you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatsoever you should be binding on the earth shall be those things having been bound in the heavens. And whatsoever you should be loosing on the earth shall be those things having been loosed 
in the heavens. What this is clearly stating is a condition on what decisions and how decisions were to be made. Jesus is stating a condition on what should be bound on the earth by Peter and as we will see the other apostles. In other words, when they made decisions affecting the church, they had the authority to make decisions, but only within the bounds of what had been bound in heaven. Whatever should or might be bound on the earth must already have been bound in heaven. Whatever was loosed must have already been loosed in the heavens. In other words, the authority to loose and bind is limited to those things already bound in heaven or loosed in heaven as specified in divine law, that is, in the word of God. Now, this authority to bind and loose was not given to Peter alone. It was given to all of the apostles that Christ had appointed. We read in Matthew 18, Matthew 18 and verse 15, beginning with verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. In other words, to the ministers, the leaders in the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, speaking to his disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The exact same thing that he said to Peter earlier. And this is, again, from the New King James Version. Now, this authority of binding and loosing, such as it is, is limited to, make, to making judgments in matters of controversy. In the Greek, the words for you bind and you loose is singular in Matthew 16, but these words are plural in Matthew 18 and verse 18 but they are the exact same words other than the fact that one is singular when Peter was addressed as an individual and plural when the others were addressed. This authority is given to all true ministers, not impostors, but true ministers in their own spheres of responsibility. Only judgments made in accordance with God's law and his will, however, have any legitimacy now, in a book on Greek grammar called Basics of Biblical Greek is an explanation of what was said from the perspective of the Greek language in Matthew 18 and verse 18. And here's what it says. This is from the Basics of Biblical Greek by William D. Uh, Muntz, 
M-O-U-N-C-E, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, that name, but I pronounce it Mounts, I guess it could be pronounced Mounts or some other way, but anyway, he is the author, he's a well-known scholar of the Greek language, Biblical Greek, and this is a Basics of Biblical Greek, a book that he wrote. This particular comment, though, is written by another author named Craig S. Keener. And so here's what the explanation is. Quote, in some translations of Matthew 18, verse 18, it sounds like Jesus promised his disciples that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven and whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. In other words, they had the power to bind and loose and heaven, in other words, God, would simply back up their decrees. But the matter is not quite so simple. The actions described in heaven are future perfect passives. Future perfect passives, and the case is also true with uh, Matthew 16 in the relevant passage there. Which could, it goes on to say, be translated, will have already been bound in heaven, will have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, the heavenly decree confirming the earthly one is based on a prior verdict. This is the language of the law court. Jewish legal issues were normally decided in Jesus' day by elders in the synagogue community, later by rabbis. Many Jewish people believed that the authority of heaven stood behind the earthly judges when they decided cases based on a correct understanding of God's law. Notice the caveat, the qualification here. Many Jewish people believe that the authority of heaven stood behind the earthly judges when they decided cases based on a correct understanding of God's law. This process came to be called binding and loosing. Jesus' contemporaries often envisioned God's justice in terms of a heavenly court. By obeying God's law, the earthly court simply ratified the decrees of the heavenly court. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Christians who follow the careful procedures of verses 15 through 17 may be assured that they will act on the authority of God's court when they decide cases, end quote. So the deciding factor is what does God's law say? What does God's word say? And any decisions are to be consistent with God's word, his law. And this is consistent with many other scriptures that clearly inform us that God's word is supreme. All Christians, including ministers who are truly God's ministers, are bound by his word. God and Christ are not bound by the word of any human. And Christ did not promise that whatever some human being might decide, contrary to the word of God, would be ratified by heaven.
In fact, we read in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, God's instructions to Israel, he said, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. We read in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. In Proverbs 30, beginning with verse five, Proverbs 30 and verse five, it says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Gill's commentary has the following to say on Proverbs 30 and verse six, the verse we just read, where it speaks of not adding to the words of God. It says, to the words of God as the Jews did by joining their oral law or the traditions of the elders to the written word and preferring them before it. And as the papists, by making their unwritten traditions and the sense and determinations of their church equal to the scriptures. And as all enthusiasts do who set up their pretended dreams, visions, revelations, and prophecies upon a foot with the word of God or as superior to it. Whereas that is and that only the rule and standard of faith and practice and is a sufficient and perfect one. In other words, the scriptures are our guide. They provide the instructions that we are to follow and all decisions must be consistent with scripture. We read in John 8, beginning verse 31, John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We're told we are to buy, if we want to be Christ's disciples, we must abide in his word. His word is preserved in the scriptures. Jesus said, in John 15 and verse seven, John 15 and verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Gill's commentary has the following to say on John 15 and verse seven, quote, abiding in Christ is here explained by his words or doctrines abiding in his disciples, end quote. We're told that God's word, that is his commandments, are to be in the heart of every Christian, of every Israelite, actually of everybody on earth, but, but especially those who were in a more intimate relationship with God than most of the rest of humanity. In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 6, we're told these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, some might ask, well, what about John 20 and verse 23? What about 20, John 20 and verse 23, where Jesus said, quote, if you forgive the sins of any, 
they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now the context shows that these words were spoken to Jesus' disciples, the ones who were to become the 12 apostles at least, and if not others, but probably limited to them, although Thomas was not present on the occasion. One of the 12 was not present. Thomas, who was actually one of the 11 at the time, because Judas had killed himself after betraying Christ. But the apostles were told, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what does that mean? Barnes New Testament notes has this to say on John 20 and verse 23, concerning those who sin, Barnes says, it is worthy of remark here that Jesus confers the same power on all the apostles. This wasn't addressed to just Peter, it was addressed to all the apostles. He gives no one of them any peculiar authority. If Peter, as the papists pretend, had been appointed to any peculiar authority, it is wonderful that the Savior did not hear hint at any such preeminence. And by the way, it is, has been often claimed that the popes have the power to forgive sins. And often they have forgiven sins for money. So go, going on, it says, Peter, as the papists pretend, had been appointed to any peculiar authority. It is wonderful that the Savior did not hear hint at any such preeminence. The passage conclusively proves that they were invested with equal power in organizing and governing the church. The authority which he had given Peter to preach the gospel first to the Jews and Gentiles does not militate against this. This authority given them was full proof that they were inspired. The meaning of the passage is not that man can forgive sins, that belongs only to God, but that they should be inspired that is founding the church and in declaring the will of God, they should be taught by the Holy Spirit, or he has Holy Ghost, but we'll say the Holy Spirit, which is what it ought to be phrased as, to what the Holy Spirit to declare on what terms, to what characters, and to what temper of mind God would extend forgiveness of sins. Now I'm going to break in here with a comment. In other words, what he's saying is that they were being given a commission to preach the gospel to explain to people what is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Not that they would have the power to themselves absolve people of their sins, but that they would explain to people what was necessary for them to be absolved of their sins, which is part of what the gospel is about. Going on with uh, Barnes' comment, it says, it was not authority to forgive individuals, but to establish in all the churches the terms and conditions on which men might be pardoned with a promise that God would confirm all that they taught, that all might have assurance of forgiveness who would comply with those terms and that those who did not comply should not be forgiven, but that their sins would be retained. 
This commission is as far as possible from the authority which the Roman Catholic claims of remitting sin and of pronouncing pardon, end quote. Adam Clark's commentary has the following to say on John 20 and verse 23, quote, it is certain God alone can forgive sins and it would not only be blasphemous, but grossly absurd to say that any creature could remit the guilt of a transgression which had been committed against the creator. The apostles received from the Lord the doctrine of reconciliation and the doctrine of condemnation. They who believed on the Son of God in consequence of their preaching had their sins remitted, and they who would not believe were declared to lie under condemnation. End quote. Now again, what they're saying here is what this passage amounts to is that they were being instructed to proclaim to their listeners what is necessary for forgiveness of sin by God the ablution of sins, the washing away of sins by God the Creator, they were to relay that information to their audience, the world. And those who believed it and acted on what they were told in a proper way would be washed and cleansed of their sins. Those who refused would be condemned. So what this has to do with is doctrine, the preaching of the true doctrine of salvation. We read in Mark 16, beginning verse 15, Jesus' instructions to his disciples, Mark 16, verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And this is essentially what the impetus of John 20 and verse 23 is about. The apostles were charged with the responsibility to make the knowledge of salvation and how to attain it known to the world. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that there is knowledge, wisdom, that is necessary for salvation. And that wisdom comes from the Holy Scriptures. In Psalm 19, verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In John 5, beginning with verse 39, John 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In other words, the scriptures contain the formula for attaining eternal life but they were not willing to follow the instructions of Scripture. They were repelled by what Jesus taught. They rejected it, the people he was speaking to at the time. In Acts 13, 
beginning in verse 38, Acts 13, verse 38, we read, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Through this man, Jesus Christ is being the one being spoken of. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So the forgiveness of sins comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1 beginning with verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. So what Peter is telling them is that they were dead in their sins, in their ignorance, but they had been informed by the preaching of the gospel, the word of God. And through that knowledge, they had learned about Jesus Christ and what was necessary for salvation, and they had acted on faith. In Titus 1, beginning with verse 1, Paul wrote to Titus, 
Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised from time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So notice the element here of the proclaiming of the word of God makes the difference between salvation and condemnation and whether one accepts it or not. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice grace and peace through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Notice that this knowledge is a necessary element in escaping sin and its penalties. Romans 16, beginning with verse 24, Paul wrote, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest or revealed and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all peoples or all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. Again, we see the revelation through the preaching of the gospel, the word of God to the nations to show them the path of salvation. In Ephesians 1, beginning of verse 13, Ephesians 1 and verse 13, in him that is in Jesus Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which as it should be is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the proclaiming of the gospel, the word of God, the knowledge contained therein is necessary for salvation. And that's what was being related in John 20 and verse 23. Now let's go back to Matthew 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So was Jesus saying that he would build his church on Peter, which is what is claimed 
as part of what gives the Pope his authority as the successor to Peter. In the Greek in this verse, the word Peter is Petrus. That the, the name of Peter, Petrus, the Greek Petrus, means a detached stone or boulder or a stone that might be thrown or easily moved. In other words, a relatively small rock, a stone that could be easily thrown or moved. So Jesus said to Peter, you are Petrus, you're a little rock, so to speak. And he said on this rock, which is a different Greek word, Petra, I will build my church. Now, the word Petra, the rock on which the church was to be built, means a massive rock or a foundation stone or a rocky fortress. In other words, it's a huge rock, massive. And what Jesus is saying is not that he was going to build the church on Peter primarily, but that he would build the church on this rock himself because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. As Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter 2 and verse 6, 1 Peter 2 and verse 6, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone referring, as the context makes clear to Jesus Christ, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, so Peter wasn't writing about himself as the chief cornerstone, he who believes on him, Jesus Christ, will by no means put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone, the stone which the builders Rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Then in Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 17, Ephesians 2 and verse 17, Paul wrote, He came and preached peace to those, uh, to you who were far off and to those who were near. Speaking of Jesus Christ, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the church is likened to a building made of stone, and each member is a stone forming part of the building. The foundation consists 
of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, not, not Peter nor any other individual prophet or uh, apostle. They, they together form part of the foundation, but Jesus Christ is the rock, the, the Petra, the chief cornerstone. Now, what about the keys being given the keys to the kingdom of heaven? The keys, we've already alluded to these. The keys have to do with the knowledge of Christ and ancillary keys, the knowledge of what it takes to be in God's kingdom. And these keys are in the possession of all true representatives of Christ. They're in the possession of all who have the true knowledge of Christ because it is the knowledge necessary for salvation that those keys consist of. Jesus said in Luke 11 and verse 52, Luke 11 and verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 2, 2 Peter 1 and verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious, precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are the keys that Peter was given, that he passed on to us and to those he ministered to, the same keys that all of the uh, apostles and the church itself was given. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Second Peter 1, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, the key is to heed 
the word of God, which is not subject to any private interpretation. The Bible interprets itself. James 1, verse 21, James 1 and verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So what were the keys that were given to Peter and to the others? They are further specified in statements Peter made to those to whom he was testifying. In Acts 2 and verse 38, Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 10 and verse 35, Peter said, In every nation, whoever fears him, that is God, and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now concerning the judging and forgiving of sins, we read in John 5 and verse 22, Jesus said, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. In other words, the father judges, but he does it indirectly through Jesus Christ. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. We read in Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 12, Colossians 1 and verse 12, strength, well, let's, let's uh, back up a little bit and start out with uh, verse 10. It says that he was writing to the Colossians, says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who, is, who has qualified us to be partakers, or it would be better translated, who qualifies us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, or again, better translated, delivers us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or conveys us. It was, would be a better rendering into the kingdom of his, the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice who forgives sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In other words, no human being, no pope, no church leader, 
is on the same level of, as Jesus Christ as has been claimed. No one on earth is taking the place of God or sitting in the seat of Jesus Christ. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he in all things may have the preeminence, that he may have the preeminence. No one has equal status with God or Jesus Christ, no human being. No one on earth has the authority to overrule God. Otherwise, the tail would be wagging the dog. Authority to make judgments has validity only when used in accordance with God's will and his word. Peter was an apostle, a herald of the gospel, but he was not a despot. He did not claim to rule the world, much less heaven and earth and hell. I, sh I should say, uh, much less heaven and hell. Peter followed Christ and encouraged others to follow in Christ's footsteps, but he did not seek to kill those who were not inclined to listen to him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls is Jesus Christ. Peter was not the first pope. 